from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Six years. Um, grateful to have my boys in the front row. They call that spitting distance in you know southern churches, I think. Um, you know, um, this is Pastor Appreciation Month, and I was thinking this week. In fact, I heard, you know, there's a lot to appreciate pastors for. Uh, one of the things we should appreciate about pastors is that every week, I mean, imagine this: you spend ten hours preparing a sermon that you get to deliver over 45 minutes to your closest friends so that they can go to lunch and critique that sermon. <laughs> and uh, in some cases, you do that twice. I see Pastor Dan over there. He's like, uh-huh, this is, this is the life of a pastor. And, um, you know, what a tremendous uh, job our pastors do for us. And it is a, truly a privilege to be able to uh, be here in the pulpit sharing with you. Um, it's great to hear Dave you know, using his gifts overseas in the Philippines, helping ordain all of those pastors. uh, Truly awesome. You know, what I want to share today is something I've been wrestling with personally over the last few months, probably longer than that, but I've been thinking quite a bit about it. You know, kind of a a personal challenge, uh, if you will. I would call it more of an exhortation uh, than necessarily a a teaching, although obviously there's going to be lots of scripture I intend it to be a little bit challenging to us, but certainly not meant as like a rebuke because, hey, it's not my job to rebuke you. I don't want to rebuke you. I'm not the pastor. Dave is the pastor, and I don't think he wants to rebuke you. Uh, He wants to love you and encourage you, and and my sense and my belief is that that's what this message will be. But it also appropriately needs to challenge us because anytime we examine ourselves in light of God's word, it should challenge challenge us. Um, I want to start a little bit of background and kind of my testimony of how I came to the Lord. Um, you know, I grew up basically thinking I was a Christian. I probably would have argued with you that I was a Christian, um, but I truly didn't know Christ until I was 18 years old. Um, I wasn't living for God, although I, I genuinely wanted a clean slate. You know, from time to time, you know how it is when you're a kid, you get in big trouble, you finally confess your sins, it's all out in the open, and you feel good for a couple of days. And then I just managed to find my way right back into that sin. And there was kind of this cycle that I never really was able to break free of, although I genuinely wanted to. Um, I remember one time my aunt, who uh, is a Christian, she was talking about being born again. And I remember kind of mocking her and think, everybody thinks they're right. What makes you think you're right? And just kind of had that attitude. And it felt to me like that phrase, that very phrase, being born again, was just one more way that somebody could say they were superior to me and, you know, just kind of this hierarchical stuff. And I just wasn't really buying it. But when I was 18, I had a tragedy happen in my life. My closest friend who I had grown up with uh, died in a head-on crash. His name was Jason. And Jason was going out to work with my dad very early, and undoubtedly he had been out doing who knows what, pushing hard like teenagers are prone to do. And he was driving a Honda Civic out to Glide on the highway there and probably fell asleep and crossed into the oncoming traffic and had a head on and and was dead. And I remember getting that news, and at first the brain struggles to process. You're kind of in denial, like, am I dreaming? How can this happen? 
but then I just remember having this thought, like, life is short. You need to live for God. And it was kind of like game on. But the next six months of my life were actually worse. And I discovered something that perhaps you've discovered or you're discovering that it's impossible to live for God without God. We can't do it. See, we're fortunate if the desire's there, but there's no way to fulfill that desire without God. See, I had gone to church from time to time, and down in Azalea, South County, where I grew up, there's a pastor who's labored faithfully. His name Dan Fleming. He's labored faithfully there for like 30 years. He's still there. And um, I liked him. One time he sent me this postcard. He's like, have you ever thought that God might be calling you into ministry? Like the brakes went on. I was like, uh-uh. Because I thought about all the things that I would have to give up in order to live for God, and I just wasn't willing to give them up. Probably didn't think I could give them up. But here I am today, ministering. I remember uh, after my friend died, I broke up with my girlfriend, who is now my wife, Helen. And I was down in California. I was trying desperately to sow my wild oats, rather unsuccessfully, I might add. And uh, I went to this underage nightclub because I was underage, went in, left. And as I was walking out, I was approached by some Christian folk who were out doing street ministry. And they invited me to church. I had this little flyer with this headbanger kind of rock and roll guy on there. And I'm like, OK. So I went to church the next day. And there's this little storefront church. And in between this kind of folksy music that wasn't that great people would get up and they would just talk about how Jesus Christ had changed their life. And there was something in my spirit that resonated with what was being shared. And I, I remembered Pastor Dan and, and how he made me feel. And uh, there's this gentleman that Dave Quilla actually knows quite well named Mark Whitehead was sharing his testimony of how God had changed his life. And I'm like, that guy has that same spirit. And after the service, they invited people to come pray and I didn't. I sat in the back and somebody came to me and said, you want to pray? And I was like, sure, I'll pray. I'm up for anything. <laughs> so I prayed. I was like, why not? Well, after service, they were actually going out to the streets to do ministry. They said, you want to come? Why not? They actually had a bullhorn and they were preaching to people. Although there were times that later on they were preaching at people. And you know what I'm talking about. And somebody says, you want to try it? And I'm like, why not? I knew one verse from Good News Club. Who knows the verse? John 3.16. That's the only verse I knew. It was good enough. And then I stood there and I said, God so loved the world. And we wrapped up the outreach. I remember driving home and I woke up the next day and I just felt completely different. See, something had happened to me. I felt forgiven. I felt cleansed. I felt uh, like the shame I had been dragging around because I we all have this account of all the things we've done wrong. We know what they are, right? But I felt cleansed from that, and I felt different. And later on, you know, I concluded actually pretty quickly, you've been born again. It actually surprised me. 
you know, I remember my dad introducing me to some people that I worked with. He said, tell them what happened. And I was like, yeah, I went to church and, you know, I got saved. They're like, oh, Seth the born again. I'm like, I guess I am. And later on, as I began to dive into the scriptures, I stumbled upon a scripture that for the first time kind of showed me what had happened to me. And uh, this is not our primary text, but it's a text that was pretty important to me when I discovered what had happened. And it comes from um, Galatians 4.3. says this through 6. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that's what had happened to me. God had adopted me and has sent his spirit into my heart. And then I now had this feeling of God being a loving father instead of a fearful judge to me. It's interesting how sometimes we feel it before we understand it. And that's what had happened to me. But God used scripture to illuminate to me what had happened. And so at 18 years old, I began this new life. I I like to tell people, you know, I I felt like I smiled so much my face hurt. Because I was just happy. Joy. I couldn't think an impure thought if I tried. God had been very, very kind to me. If you're a golfer, you know that there's this thing called a golf ball cleaner. Because, you know, when you hit your ball out of the fairway into the mud, you must clean it. And this happens a lot. And. So I put, you know, you put the golf ball in there and you go like this and you pull it out and it's just sparkly clean and white, right? That's how I felt. I felt like God had just cleansed me through a work that I could never have done. And so I got saved in that that church. I went back to that church and it was a very zealous church. In fact, it was full-blown Pentecostal church. Right about now, people are like, what? It's true. I like to say there was lots of pep rally. And a little bit of playing the game. You know, there was a lot of sound. It reminds me, uh, not long ago, Dave had asked me to go check in on some of the churches in Romania that we uh, have funded. And I, it had been a long time since I had been to a full-blown Pentecostal church. So I'm on the stage, and they start singing, and boom, everybody's up, everybody's hands out. I was like, whoa. And it reminded me of the church that I got saved in. It was very expressive. I would say not particularly deep theologically, um, but very high commitment. A lot of outreach, a lot of community groups. I think we went to church twice on Sundays, twice on Sundays, once on Wednesdays. I mean, but I remember being young, saved, happily married, all in. Over time, we felt called to move back to Oregon, moved to Portland, ended up in a four-square church. You have Pentecostal, you have Charismatic. This was kind of Charismatic. You might not know it, but it was. Seven years up there-ish, moved to Roseburg, end up in another four-square church. Six years ago, we came to CLF. So that's kind of my faith journey with with churches. And I share that because, uh, first, I want you to know this has honestly been the best church experience my wife Helen and I have ever had. We're just thrilled to have our kids uh, and family a part of this church. We love this church. As I look at my own 
theological growth, uh, my own overall understanding of God's word and how he's active with mankind. I'd like to think that I've matured as I've gained experience and been in God's word over time. But the challenge that I want to talk about today is something else that I've noticed over time, and that is um, the expression of my faith has become a bit more dignified over time. Maybe even comfortable. And at times I've been confronted with the question of whether I'm just kind of going through the motions of a practical Christianity or if I'm truly inviting and depending upon God to do in me what he wants to do. Whether I'm trying to live this life in my own strength or not. In the early days, I was full of faith, but I was pretty ignorant, if I really call it like it was. Now, we tend to use words like, how do we practice our faith? It's just, it's just a little different. So several people I've known over the years have, uh, and, and they're friends, but I wouldn't say people that I emulate, have, have literally said out of their mouth, you know, I, things like this. I think it's too complicated. I think we should really just love God and do what we want. And I'm like, you know, that's a convenient approach. But I can't get my head around, is that genuine faith or is that narcissistic faith that makes us the center of the universe? And we just kind of want to stamp God's approval on what it is on our own agendas, really. Because I think that that's what that kind of faith is. But when I look at how I can sometimes actually behave, my version might sound more like love God and and do all the right things. Or love God and do what you should do. You see, it's become a kind of a practical faith. I keep it in the guardrails. I don't get too far out of what's morally or ethically correct. And be a good Christian man and maybe even an example to others when I can. That's also not an ideal way of framing it. And so that's a bit of a, a bit of a confession, a bit of an opening explanation of the, the problem I'm struggling with and where we're going to turn to the word to see where Paul gives an exhortation about that. And so as we, as we turn to the word in our primary text here in just a moment, it's from Galatians, and we'll kind of do a quick survey of the book of Galatians, but we've got two specific sections that we'll spend quite a bit of time in. Um, but Paul is pretty fired up as he's talking to the Galatians. He's concerned that something has happened to them and that he was presented to them at one point a, a pure, true gospel that they believed, and then people came in and started overlaying all these other regulations and rules and, no, this is the way you should do it from the from following the law, all the way through things like circumcision and festivals and all that. And Paul is like, got this big time out here. I'm going to intervene. This is an intervention letter in a lot of ways to the Galatians. And he says this in Galatians 1.6. He says, I'm astonished that you so quickly, you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And Paul is concerned. And so with that, We'll go to Galatians 2.20 through 
Galatians 3.3. If you would, stand with me as we read our primary text this morning. And then I will pray. Galatians 2.20 begins, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Galatians 3 begins, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the law? Actually, by the flesh? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that your your word would resonate in our hearts. We pray that our hearts would be soft to receive instruction. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be soft to receive the truth of your word and to reflect upon um, what is written, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would have faith to apply what we hear, and we just give you permission, Lord, to have your reign. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So along the way, Galatians 2.20 has been my adopted life verse. And I love how this shows up. As we said, Paul is, he's astonished. He's, he's doing this intervention. And I feel like Galatians 2.20 and the first part of, of chapter 3 are really well positioned because it's a very clear description of the gospel. This is what it means to be saved. And then it's also a very clear warning. Right after that. And so the this is what it means to be saved. Paul is describing in first person how he how he rolls, how he does the Christian life. And it's one of the most succinct sections you can ever find. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. My agenda is dead. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But it's Christ living through me. And since I still have a heartbeat, right, and the life I now live in the flesh, I'm living in faith in the Son of God. And then this last piece of who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not a it's not a tyrannical master relationship. It's a loving God. And what's amazing about the gospel is it's completely free on one hand. But on the other hand, it costs you everything. It's completely free to us. It cost Christ his blood. But but to really embrace it as the gospel is intended is to live a crucified life. But it's a life of faith in Christ's work. It's a life where Christ is living through us. And it's a relationship of love. And that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And then as he explains this to the Galatians, he moves into the warning section. In Galatians 3, 3, he asks a very poignant question, the question that I'm wrestling with today, the question that I'm putting before us today, is having begun by the Spirit, 
are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun something, walking with Christ, being born again, being empowered by his spirit, living for Christ, have things happened in your life that are now causing you to want to be perfected by the flesh, as in in your own strength, in your own thinking, in your own ways. And so for the Galatians, it was something very specific. We know that they were Gentiles. They had a true encounter with Christ. They were living the born-again life. And then Jewish believers, who still embraced the law, had come into their environment and had started overlaying on these Galatians, hey, you need to do it this way. You need to do it that way. And it was naturally very confusing to those people who had had, who had, had a true conversion experience but leaders they respected, including, in some ways, Peter was involved in this. And other brothers got him very confused. And Paul is seeing this coming, and he's throwing a big time out, and he's intervening, and he's saying, we can't go down that path. The gospel is about God changing you through faith and giving you the spirit to live the life he's called you to. It is not about your ability to follow all the rules. And if you're going to go down that path, he says to the Galatians, you're going to be led astray. And so <clears throat> he says, that we're going to kind of quickly go through the main points, I should say, some of the main points in the letter to the Galatians. Paul, from the very beginning, he says, I'm astonished at how quickly this is happening. Paul reminds them, he says, I brought you a gospel that didn't come from other men. I brought you a gospel that Jesus Christ delivered to me personally and told me to deliver you. Literally knocked Paul off his high horse. You remember the story. And so Paul is saying, why are you listening to other men? Listen to the gospel that God gave me for you. Paul says, false brothers are slipping in. He said, you know, even Peter who we love and admire, he's, I had to rebuke him in front of everybody because he was kind of acting one way around the Jewish believers and acting another way around the Gentile believers. He's like, that doesn't work in God's house. Paul was throwing the flag. He was saying, We're, we got to get this right because generations upon generations of future believers, including us, this is going to matter to them what the true gospel is. And Paul was making it very clear, the true gospel is living a crucified life with Christ, not letting other people come in with all these rules and regulations. That was the challenge that the Galatians were facing. In some ways, he's saying, with this question of having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's saying, how were you saved in the first place? And now why are you trying to do it differently? And see, here's where I can start to apply that. Although I'm not in Galatia, although I'm not wrestling directly with whether to follow the law or to follow God, I have other things that I'm wrestling with. The, the book of Galatians is, there's a lot of contrasts in there. He talks about the spirit works this way, but your natural flesh works that way. He talks about you can live life through this promise that God will accomplish what he said he would accomplish, or you can live life through the law. Like you can make it all work and check all the boxes. Essentially summarizing, paraphrasing, you can do it through his strength or you can try to do it through your own strength. 
And he draws these contrasts throughout the book. And he says in Galatians 4.19, My little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. I'm perplexed about you. Right? You've got to remember, he's writing this to them. You know how it is when you write an email that's a little bit tense. You're like, ooh, I wonder how that's going to come off. Right? Paul is saying, I know this is hurting you. I wish you could see in my eyes you know, the empathy and the love I have for you. I'm genuinely concerned. You're getting off track. You're getting off track quickly, and this isn't going to end well. Let's fix it. It's an intervention. Paul reminds them what the pure gospel is, receiving God's promise, faith through Christ, and then living out this life in the power of the Spirit. And he hammers it home through this letter. You know, one thing that I found really interesting I hadn't fully appreciated until doing this study is that Paul says, God gave you the promise in Abraham way back here. He said, Abraham, you're going to bless all nations. Didn't just say the Jewish nations, nation. He said all nations. So there's this promise that God was going to do something that wasn't just going to go through Israel. It was going to go to all of us. And that the law came 430 years after the promise. So he's like, why are you getting all wrapped up in the law? The promise came first, and he shows that the promise of God led led to the fulfillment through Christ, led to the giving of the Spirit to live this life. And he's just reminding them, don't try to do it through your own effort. Don't try to go through the motions and believe that somehow you can do this on your own. It's a promise fulfilled through faith in Christ, empowered by the Spirit. And as he wraps up the book of Galatians, he says, For through the Spirit, by faith, Galatians 5.5, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's the zone we're in. We're eagerly waiting. He tells us in 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And then he lands with, don't be deceived, which I would paraphrase, paraphrase as, this is really serious, right? Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit, will reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so that's kind of a quick survey of the book of Galatians. It's this intervention. Paul is perplexed. He's got some passion. He's got some urgency. He's saying, let's not get off track here. And I think one of the temptations that we have in modern life is we can look at something like that and we could tell ourselves, well, I would never fall for that. Right? Have you ever thought, if I was in the Garden of Eden and the serpent was offering me this fruit or my Wife was offering me this fruit. Sorry. Just would I would I indulge, you know? And I kind of have to be honest. I'm like, well, given my track record, I think I I think we'd all be in trouble, you know. But sometimes we play that game of no, I would never do that. We look back on history and we think, oh, but we're looking at it from from our current view. And I, I learned a, a a concept recently called presentism. 
In presentism, there's a definition here, which is this uncritical adherence to present-day attitudes, especially the tendency to interpret past events in terms of our modern values and concepts. And here's a little bit of further one. Uh, the American Historical Association is, is kind of upset about this trend they see, and they say it argues that uh, presentism encourages a kind of moral complacency and self-congratulating, interpreting the past in terms of present concerns usually leads us to find ourselves morally superior. So what I mean by this is we look at what we look at today, this air that we breathe, and we try to make judgments about how we would have behaved back in the past if we were in Galatia. You know, bringing this home, we could look at, we could have debates about, well, how would we have acted in the founding of our country, right? We don't know. They didn't even have running water or medicine in a lot of these places, right? Um, a current example of that would be um, the debate around slavery. Like, how would we have acted if slavery was active and we were part of that Civil War discussion? Like, how would we have come down? People can make all sorts of judgments about that, but you don't know if you're not there. One of the things that I like to put in front of people on that particular topic is, all right, I'll give you that. Let's take abortion. In our current, that's our, that's our modern issue. How are the people that are railing against America for all of the wrongs we've done? And we have done many wrongs. Be clear on that. But we sit where we sit today, looking back, casting judgment on all these generations before us. But we weren't there. We are here. What are the issues of our day that are just as tricky for us to navigate as the Galatians were trying to navigate? Right? This, this idea of presentism is don't take the framework we have now with all of these comforts and all of these blessings and thousands of years of good teaching that sits in front of us, whether we read it or not. These people didn't even have it. They didn't have a New Testament. They were living the New Testament, right? So we have to be, be very careful of that. But where this kind of gets interesting to me is we start to ask ourselves the questions. If Paul was speaking to the Galatians about something that was tripping them up and drifting them away from the spirit towards something that was their own effort, where might that be happening in my own life today? An example, we could say for them that the cultural air they were breathing was conflicted because they had different believers who they respected saying, this is the way to follow God. And they were they were conflicted and they were compromised because there was this confusion happening. For us, ask myself, the cultural air that I'm breathing is what? Political? What does that make me? Anxious? Fearful that my country's gonna go off the rails? The cultural air I'm breathing as an American, it's comfortable. Maybe I'm so comfortable that the temptation is I become apathetic. I don't act like I don't need anything. Right? We have our own set of issues. Or the cultural air I'm breathing is so distracted and full of entertainment choices that I'm unavailable for what it is that God's wanting me to do. You can see how these kind of questions play out if we will take the time to ask them. 
But Paul's question to the Galatians is still ringing in my ears, and maybe it's ringing in yours as you listen to this point this morning, when he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Am I trying to live this Christian life solely on my own effort because I feel like I can handle it, or am I genuinely pursuing God's Spirit at each step, in each crisis that I face, in each interpersonal relationship that is strained, in each dream or calling that I have, am I, am I putting myself at a place where I actually need faith? I need to trust God to make it happen, or it's just not going to happen. Or am I playing it safe in this zone of respectable, practical Christianity? I just, I had finished the sermon and I was sitting, I was in Bend, uh, yesterday and waiting to be picked up. And I got a, uh, I was reading a tweet and I think it was from John Ortberg, and it basically said this, the danger of modern Christianity isn't that we're going to abandon the faith. The danger is that we'll accept a mediocre version of it and be satisfied with it. And I was like, ouch, ouch. When God is moving with men and mankind and humanity, it always involves his spirit. And I want to take a few moments to run through some of the places that is present in the scripture. John 3, 5, when Jesus comes on the scene, things start to change. You know this section because he's talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to him about being born again. He says, you must be born again. Uh, 3, 6 says this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then 3.8 says this. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so Nicodemus, being a teacher, he's like, no, no, give me rules. Give me structure. Give me, give me, give me stuff I can get my arms around. And Jesus is like, it's not how it's going to work. This is going to be the spirit. You're not going to be able to control or contain it. You might see it. A few other examples of God's spirit being active through scripture. All the way back in the very beginning, Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Verse 2 says this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So as God gets ready to initiate creation. Spirit is there. We see when the Bible calls somebody to a great exploit, to a great task, God's spirit is upon them. One that came to my mind as I was reading was in Samuel. When Israel says, we want a king, God's like, no, I'll, I'll be your king. You don't need a king. No, we want a king. Samuel's like, it's not going to go very well. You're not going to like it. He's going to take all your best stuff. He's going to be very selfish. And they're like, Samuel, stop talking. Give us a king. So Samuel is instructed by the Lord to anoint Saul. And here's what happens during that section of, of uh, during that anointing. It says the spirit in Samuel 10, 6, the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, Saul, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So God's spirit shows up to help Saul be king. But by Samuel 16, Saul has decided that he can do it in his own strength. He's not willing to wait for God to do it God's way. And Saul 
steps out of the protection of God's plan and says, I'm going to make this happen on my own. And the scripture tells us in 1614, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So up next in the king rotation, the very next verse is David being anointed as king. 1613, or previous verse. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then we know that David was a mighty king. We also know that David had some major failures. And when a leader fails, there are major ripples. It doesn't just affect the leader. It affects generations. It affects kingdoms. And as David is repenting of that failure with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, he cries out in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. And then he shares his, his inner fear. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. You see, he had had that Holy Spirit poured on him. He had sinned. He was feeling that separation, and he was like, ah, I can't do this without God's Holy Spirit. As Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist was telling people, listen, Mark 1.8, I baptize you with water, but he, pointing to Jesus, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says, mine is a baptism of repentance. He's going to baptize you with fire. There was this promise of the Spirit that kept moving and working. When Jesus shows up on the scene, the first sermon he ever preached, he's in the temple, he rolls out the scrolls, and he goes to a section, I believe from Isaiah, where it's written about him, and he begins to say, here's what I'm here to do. And the very first thing he says is this in Luke 4.18. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus, being unlike any other man, John 3:34 says this about the way that Jesus operated in the Spirit. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. That means that Jesus was revealing to us the Spirit in its full force. Jesus wasn't like a container of a man that had some Spirit in him. Jesus was like the very fountain of the Spirit, endless. Every word he said was God's word. Unlimited power on display for us. You see, we live in the easiest time ever to serve God. I believe that. I can't point to it in the Bible, but I I think I can make a case for it in the Bible. Because the people that were before Jesus' resurrection, because after the, the resurrection, Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on his disciples, and he promised them that the Holy Spirit would come. Before Jesus Christ's resurrection, you read the word, and the word says that God was with them, that God's spirit was upon them when they were called to these mighty exploits. 
But as we move into the New Testament, we see that God's Spirit is in us. Think of the difference between having God with us and having God in us. You see, we go back to Galatians 2.20, and that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And that makes all the difference. When God's Spirit is at work, that's what makes the difference. God's Spirit inside of us regenerates us to new life and empowers us to continue in that new life. Paul says, let's not grow weary in well-doing. How do we not grow weary in well-doing? It's by the Spirit. It's by seeking and making ourselves available and desiring. It's a change. It's an upgrade. It's an advantage for us to have God's Spirit in us. Very specifically, we'll spend a little bit of time here and then we'll, we'll wrap up. When Jesus is getting ready to go back to the Father, he's telling the disciples, I'm leaving you. And, of course, they're they're kind of freaking out. Why wouldn't you be? Right? You're walking with Jesus. It's very turbulent times. He's turning the world upside down. He's like, I'm leaving. And they're rightly apprehensive. And he tells them something that's very interesting. In John 16, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Imagine that. He says, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you're not going to see me any longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you you can't bear them now, meaning they were obviously upset. (laughs) But he says this in 1613. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare it to you, the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine. Jesus saying, the Spirit will take what is mine and he will give it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that what that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What an amazing thing. What an amazing gospel. That not only does somebody else pay for our sins, make us completely reconciled to God through confession of those sins, through acceptance of his payment for our sins. Secure for us an eternal home that is waiting for us, but also between now and then to live inside of us and empower us to live the life that we're called to live. That's pretty good news. That is great news. We see Peter, who's like the poster child for zeal, right? Peter's like slicing ears off and I'll never deny you, Lord. And he just, he just has a lot of energy, right? And so Peter denies Christ. He goes back to fishing. Jesus calls him over, helps him through the process of repenting and owning the fact that he had sinned and denied Christ. 
restores him, fully restores him, and empowers him. And Peter finds himself on the day of Pentecost preaching. Can you imagine? I, I don't think he saw himself preaching when he was fishing after denying Jesus. But he was, because that's what God does. He calls, and then he brings the calling to completion through his spirit. And he had done that in Peter's life. And so Peter, in Acts 2.38, says, And Peter said to them, the people listening, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, like us, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. You can just see Peter preaching. And here's the amazing fruit of that. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. When God's spirit is at work in us as we pursue God's calling, amazing things can happen. And Peter was living out his new life through this power of the Spirit and obviously is an example for us. So as we ponder these words, what it means to live for Christ, live that crucified life, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then that that warning of having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected in the flesh? You see, I know... In a, in a room this size, there's, there's probably people who haven't made the jump yet, who haven't turned to Christ to trust for salvation. Every human being is born separated from God because of the sin that is part of us. We have a spiritual problem that can only be remedied by a spiritual solution. But the good news is it's not something we can earn. It's not something we can do of our own effort. It's something that we can trust in and accept in the the payment of of Christ. And so if you're here today and and you have not done that yet, I encourage you, A, don't wait, and B, don't believe that you can do this on your own. Trust that Christ can do it for you. And for those of us that have walked with Christ a while, I'm 51 now, I think that's middle age. (laughs) The danger for us is that we, we start to go through the motions. We start to think, I've got this, and we live a safe, comfortable Christianity. And I think God has called us to more. I can't tell you what that looks like in what that looks like in your life. But I would I would encourage you if there is any homework from this, other than critiquing this over lunch, I'm just kidding. If there is any homework from this, I would encourage you to spend some time just at, just wrestling with personally or with your spouse or somebody you trust. Where am I playing it safe? Where have I moved from what had been begun with the Spirit, and now I'm kind of I'm trying to do it in my own strength? My suspicion is if we will take the time to do a bit of inventory, that God, through His Spirit, will do what He promised to guide us, to instruct us, to bring us to sections of Scripture that will encourage us to live this life. We have an advantage. If we will use it, we have to ask ourselves, how much of God's spirit do we want? Enough to be saved? Enough to stay in control? Enough to accomplish what he's called us to? 
um, enough so that people don't think I'm too weird? I mean, where, where, do, where do we draw the where do we draw the boundaries? But the Spirit is available to us. If we want peace in the midst of trying times, it's going to come through God's Spirit working in us. If we want to believe God for restoration in relationships that just absolutely seem hopeless to us, can't happen. It can if God's behind it. If we have dreams that God has given us and we put them on the shelf because we're like, too much time has passed. I could never pull that off. God could do it. Like, where are those areas that God might be speaking to you? So I would just encourage you this week, spend some time wrestling with that question that Paul posed to the Galatians. Jesus said, ask, and it shall be given. Jesus promised us that his sheep hear his voice. James says, ask for wisdom. It'll be given to you. I believe that God will speak to each of us this week if we will ask these questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, for your word. We thank you that you have preserved your word by your spirit, that it could instruct us uh, so many generations after it was recorded, Lord. We also thank you that you give us the spirit, Lord, to keep us in truth, to encourage us, to counsel us, uh, to correct us, Lord, that you uh, do those things by your mercy and your grace. Lord, help us to be people of faith. Lord, help us to um, trust you. Help us to believe for great things, Lord. Um, Help us to love you more and more as we grow, Lord. Help us to look forward to the future, not in any kind of fear, but in anticipation, Lord, for what you are going to do and what you're going to complete in us. Pray this in your name, Jesus. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.